The last time we were in Paul's letter to the Colossians, we began looking at the final section. Uh, We started uh, looking at the closing of the letter where we have a a rapid-fire list of personal greetings and messages. Uh, This section runs from chapter 4, verse 7 down to chapter 4, verse 18, which is uh, the last verse in the epistle. In our last study, we considered verses 7, 8 and 9, and we got to know the two men that Paul mentions there, uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. Paul calls them beloved brothers, and uh, that's very interesting, uh, especially when you know the story of Onesimus. Tonight, we're going to meet the next three men uh, Paul mentions. Uh, We meet them in verses 10 and 11. Paul passes on a greeting from these men to the Christians at Colossae and then he says some very interesting things about them, uh, things that have significance for us nearly 2,000 years later. So our text for study is chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, but I'd like to read this whole section once again. Please, if you would, follow along as I read aloud from verse 7. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. Always labouring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say unto Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfil it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, We ask now for these next few minutes that you would uh, help us as we study your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would grant to us the understanding. I I pray that he would take the message that you want us to receive and impress it upon our hearts. We commit ourselves into your hands. In that wonderful, strong and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to consider verses 10 and 11 under, under three headings. You'll see them there in the notes. Number one, the men with a greeting. Number two, the significant, uh, their significance to Paul. And then number three, the lessons for us. The men with a greeting, their significance to Paul. And then finally, the lessons for us. And so to heading number one, the men with 
a greeting. In these verses, Paul uh, mentions three men who were with him at the time of writing. And as I said, he passes on a greeting from them. In our King James translation, we have this word, saluteth. It simply means to greet, to say hello. It's an expression of friendship and love. One of these men is quite well known to us. Another is less well known. And for the other, this is the only time he's mentioned in the Bible. I'm not going to get into an extensive biography of these men tonight. I'm going to be relatively brief uh, in uh, this first part of our lesson. I've put all of the references where these men appear in the New Testament in your notes, so you can have a a more extensive study at home if uh, that's what you'd like to do. The first man with a greeting is Aristarchus. We first meet Aristarchus in Acts chapter 19 when Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Uh, We don't know when Aristarchus was converted. We know he lived in Thessalonica, and so perhaps he came to faith in Christ when Paul ministered there on his second missionary journey. Uh, Paul spent three Sabbath days teaching in the synagogue at Thessalonica. Perhaps uh, Aristarchus was there, heard Paul preach the gospel and was converted. Evidently, he became closely associated with Paul, for in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, we're told that he was one of two men taken by the mob in that infamous riot that was instigated by Demetrius the silversmith and his fellow craftsmen who made idols. Acts chapter 19, verse 29, and the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theatre. Somehow the mob at Ephesus knew that Aristarchus was a member of Paul's missionary team and they they grabbed him and took him into the theatre. By God's providence, Aristarchus survived that ordeal. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, we learn that he was one of seven men who travelled with Paul on the homeward leg of his third missionary journey. Uh, We we mentioned these men in our last lesson because Tychicus was uh, part of this group. Uh, They went ahead of Paul from Macedonia to the city of Troas in Asia on the northwest coast of modern-day Turkey. And then when Paul arrived with Luke, uh, the party travelled by boat back to the city of Tyre in Syria, stopping most famously at Ephesus where Paul had a final meeting with the elders of the Ephesian church. It's likely that this group was responsible for the collection from the churches in Asia that was intended to relieve the poor saints in Jerusalem. We next meet Aristarchus when Paul begins his journey to Rome. Uh, You know the story of uh, Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, his trial before the religious leaders, and then his appearance before Felix and King Agrippa. Uh, You you know that uh, Paul appealed to Caesar as was his right as a Roman citizen, and so off he was sent to Rome. Acts chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. And entering into a ship of Adrametium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia. One Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. There's our man. 
Uh, This means that Aristarchus was with Paul when he was shipwrecked. What a a blessing for uh, Aristarchus. Uh, he, He went through the events Luke describes in Acts chapters 27 and 28, and uh, Aristarchus made it all the way to Rome with Paul. Here in Colossians chapter 4, Paul refers to Aristarchus as my fellow prisoner. This doesn't mean that uh, he was also a prisoner of the Roman Empire like Paul was. Uh, Rather, most commentators believe that this speaks of how Aristarchus voluntarily put himself by Paul's side. Paul was confined uh, to a house in Rome and Aristarchus lived with Paul. Of course, Aristarchus was a free man. He could live wherever he pleased. He could go wherever he wanted. But he he chose to be with Paul and share in his imprisonment. The second man with a greeting in our text is one we know quite well. Marcus, otherwise known as uh, John Mark, uh, the man who... Uh, with the help of the Apostle Peter and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave us the Gospel of Mark. Mark was a relative of Barnabas. That's mentioned here in our text. Uh, In our King James uh, translation, he's called Sister's Son to Barnabas. That would make Barnabas his uncle. The Greek word that's used here may also refer to a cousin. So Mark was either a nephew or a cousin to Barnabas. He accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but he left them halfway through. We all all know that about Mark, don't we? Uh, He went not with them to the work, the Bible says. And uh, this would become a source of contention between Paul and Barnabas Later on, uh, they were planning a return visit to the churches they had planted and Barnabas wanted to take Mark along, but Paul disagreed. And uh, in the words of Acts chapter 15, verse 39, the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from another. Barnabas took Mark and went one way and Paul took another man named Silas and went another way. Now, If you want to trace all of this out, you can... Follow the references I've put in the notes. All I want to say this this evening is that it's evident that later on, Paul's attitude towards Mark changed. Probably because Mark changed. Now, under the care of Barnabas, Mark grew up and matured in the ministry, and Paul recognised this. Right at the end of his life, Paul would say this in his second epistle to Timothy, the last letter he wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And that was Paul's final assessment of Mark. That's wonderful. Here in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, there is a section in parentheses concerning Mark. Uh, Touching whom ye received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. Uh, It seems as though the church at Colossae, perhaps all the churches in Asia Minor, had received a message about Mark. Uh, instructions that were to be followed. And I think we're given a hint about these instructions for, for Paul tells the Colossians to receive Mark should he come to them. 
Now these uh, commandments concerning Mark uh, probably had to do with his reinstatement or restoration into the fellowship and ministry of the apostles. Uh, he was once more a part of the ministry team and was to be received as such. He was to be welcomed as an apostolic representative. This sentence in verse 10 is one little piece in one of those good news stories that we have in our Bibles. Now here was a a young man who failed, a man who let others down, but that failure wasn't final. He was restored by the grace of God through the care of others and by that grace he persevered and went on to have a wonderful ministry. This is Marcus. The second man with a greeting. The third man is mentioned only here in the New Testament. Jesus called Justice. Uh, Jesus is the Greek version of what was a common Hebrew name. Uh, Jesus in English, Jesus in Greek, Yeshua in Hebrew. Uh, Justice is a Latin name meaning righteous. Uh, this, This man had a great name. He was Yeshua the Righteous. And uh, interestingly, there are two other men in the New Testament who had this name, Justice. Uh, Joseph Justice in Acts chapter 1 verse 23, and uh, Justice in Acts chapter 18 who lived next door to the synagogue in Corinth. So these were the men with a greeting. And uh, what's of particular interest is their significance to Paul. And this is the, the second heading in our study tonight. Paul groups these three men together because they were Christians from a Jewish background. He wanted to make this point to his readers. Look please at the text once again. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. This expression of the circumcision was a way of referring to their ethno-religious background. They were, they were Jewish. And in the case of Aristarchus and Jesus, they were Jews of the diaspora. That is, they were Jewish people from Jewish communities outside of Judea and Galilee. Whereas there is evidence to suggest that Mark grew up in Judea, perhaps even in Jerusalem. There is a church tradition that the The room in Jerusalem which Jesus and the disciples shared the Last Supper belonged to Mark's mother, a woman named Mary, who is actually mentioned in the book of Acts. Paul mentions these men together because he wanted to say something about them. We, We see it in the second half of verse 11. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, Paul doesn't mean that these were the only men who were assisting him in the ministry at Rome. We know that because he's already mentioned Tychicus and Onesimus, and he will go on to mention others. What Paul means is that these three men were the only Christians from a Jewish background who were working with him at Rome. Tychicus, Onesimus, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, they were all Gentile converts Christianity. 
There is no doubt that there were other Christians in Rome who had converted from Judaism. That's evident when you read Paul's letter to the church at Rome, which he he wrote several years earlier. He discusses issues and uses examples that indicate the presence of a large number of Jewish converts in the church at Rome. He, he goes to great lengths to talk about the role of the law in salvation and in the Christian life. In the book of Romans, he talks about Moses and Abraham and Sarah, iconic figures to the Jewish community. He also talks about how Christians should approach questions of Diet and holy days, these were hot button issues for Jewish people. So there were other Jewish believers in Rome, but only these three men ministered with Paul. Paul calls them my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God. They laboured for the kingdom of God. That is, they laboured to bring men and women into the kingdom by means of the gospel and and to see them grow and mature as members of the kingdom. This really is a synonym for evangelism and for the service we render to one another in the body of Christ. Uh, The church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God in this present age. Paul and these three men were doing in Rome what we're supposed to do in Lismore. Nothing more, nothing less. That Paul uses this terminology parallels with what Luke wrote in Acts about Paul's time under house arrest in Rome. I've put this paragraph in your notes. Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians while under house arrest in Rome. During this time, he expounded and testified the kingdom of God to the Jews, Acts chapter 28, verse 23. For two years, he was able to preach the kingdom of God to all who came to the house, Acts chapter 28, verse 31. And here's the point we're focusing on. Aristarchus, Marcus, and Jesus Justus were the only Christians from a Jewish background who participated in this work with Paul. Why Paul wanted the Colossians to know this, I don't know. One author suggests that it served to remind his readers of the tensions that his Gentile-oriented ministry had created. And we know this was true. Perhaps Paul mentioned this to commend these three men as examples of true Christianity, as examples of how the gospel removes the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. We can't say for certain why Paul said this, but I do think we can safely assume that this situation grieved him. It grieved him that these three were the only men of the circumcision who were working with him in Rome. This must have upset Paul for two reasons. First of all, because he had a burning desire for the conversion of his countrymen. We see this in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Paul was willing to be accursed from Christ 
for the salvation of the Jews. He would go to hell for them if it would result in them coming to Christ. That's what he means there. We see this again in Romans chapter 10 verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul passionately desired his Jewish brothers and sisters to come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, and I'm sure he wished that there were more than just these men from a Jewish background working with him to that end, working with him to evangelise the Jewish community in Rome. There were only three. This must have also grieved Paul because he detested the idea of division in the body of Christ between Christians from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. We see this in his confrontation with the Apostle Peter at Antioch that's recorded in Galatians chapter 2. We see this in what he wrote in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2 verses 11 through 22. Perhaps it was only these three men who worked with Paul... Because the other Christians in Rome from a Jewish background were uncomfortable with Paul's outreach to the Gentiles. They were uncomfortable with how Paul conversed and fellowshiped so freely with Gentiles. and They they didn't want to get involved with him and what he was doing. That there were only three was perhaps symptomatic of the wider problem that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the church, a a problem that Paul did all he could to address. There were only three. And yet it's wonderful what Paul said about them. Look once again at verse 11. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Isn't that lovely? Isn't this a a beautiful statement? These men have been a comfort to me. They've encouraged me. Now this has been written in Holy Scripture. This will stand forever. Aristarchus, Marcus, Jesus Justice were men of love and grace and faithfulness who encouraged the Apostle Paul. Now, that brings us now to the third and, and final heading in our study tonight. We've, we've seen the men with a greeting. We've seen their significance to Paul. Now finally some, some application, the lessons for us. And I, w- I want to briefly draw out just three. Lesson number one. We have an example here of something Jesus said. The labourers are few. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labourers are few. Perhaps we feel this sometimes when it comes to our little church and its efforts to reach the lost in Lismore. Perhaps we feel it in our workplace or in our wider family circles. It's comforting to know that we're we're not alone in this. There was Paul in Rome, himself a Jewish man who'd been converted, wanting to reach other Jewish people with the gospel, and there were only these three men like him working with him. Only a few. This is not a new feeling for the followers of Jesus. This is not a new problem. More often than not, this is the way it is, and we can be encouraged. Because Jesus is with us, 
Jesus will help us. Jesus will use us just as he used Paul and his little band. We just have to persevere. We just have to be faithful in what he's called us to do, as small and as insignificant as it might seem. And as we do, we must remember to pray that the the Lord of the harvest will raise up others. The labour is a few, that's... Lesson number one, we can take away from our study this evening. Lesson number two is this. Often, it's the hardest at home. Often, it's the hardest at home. Paul faced the greatest opposition to his ministry from his own countrymen, from the Jewish people. There was opposition from the Jewish community wherever he went preaching the gospel and then opposition from the the Judaizers, the the Jewish party in the church, Jewish people who professed to be believers in Jesus but insisted on circumcision and on keeping the dietary laws and so forth. And there is a sense in which Paul followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. Paul's experience was that of all who had come proclaiming God's word. A prophet is not without honour except in his own country and in his own house. This was Paul's experience in Rome. Only three members of the circumcision, only three Jewish believers were willing to work with him. His own people wanted to keep him at arm's length. This reminds us that often the hardest mission field is the one just down the street. It's our own neighbourhood, it's our workplace, it's our own family. This is often where the opposition and the antagonism are at their greatest. Again, we're not alone in this. We're not the first Christians to have found this out. And this leads us neatly to lesson number three. This is why lesson number three is so important. A little encouragement goes a long way. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. There were only a few, but they made a great difference. They were a comfort to Paul in what was a difficult situation. Now we might be a few in number, but we can have a profound effect on one another for good. In truth, God has put us together for this very purpose. We, we need each other. I need you to build me up and you need me to build you up. We, we can't make it by ourselves. A warm greeting every time that person sees us. A handshake or a hug. An email or a note expressing love and appreciation, a little act of kindness, a cake, a meal, some lawn mowing or child minding, a, a few dollars in an envelope, whatever, whatever it might be, it goes a long way. The, these are, are small gestures and yet profoundly meaningful. These things help us to persevere in the Christian life. They help us to deal with the, the opposition and the antagonism. Now I read the end of verse 11 here and I see high praise. This is almost the best thing anyone could say about a Christian. 
That's the best thing anyone could say about me, that I was a comfort to them. Don't you aspire to this? Don't you want people to, to say this about you? We'd, we'd much rather this than for them to say that we were a problem or a pain or a pest. <laughs> a little encouragement goes a long way. Uh, let's go from here this evening with a, a renewed commitment to do just this, to, to being men and women who encourage others. Uh, why not, uh, on, on the drive home, think of ways you can encourage just two people in our congregation this week. Think of some little act of kindness you could do that would lift their spirits and then do it. There's a little challenge for you. Amen.